Naveen Morad is an educator, mother, and a proud New Yorker with a lifelong passion for words. An instructional designer, she creates online learning programs to support social entrepreneurs and those working in the field of social impact. Naveen has been working in education for the past 17 years, beginning as a New York City public middle school teacher. She received her bachelor's degree in English literature from SUNY Binghamton, and her master's degree in teaching English from Teachers College, Columbia University. She lives in Brooklyn, New York City, with her seven-year-old son and his never-ending collection of Pokemon cards. I'm Jessica, and this is Duct Tape Rocket Ship: Changing How Parents Help Out Our Public Schools. In this episode, she shared her own journey as a student in the public school system, with stories on how her passion for words was not only discovered, but also encouraged and nurtured by her teacher, and how this experience transformed her life and influenced her career choice to become a public school teacher. Hi, Naveen. How are you? I'm great. Hi, Jessica. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I know that you're super busy, and I really appreciate your time. Of course, of course. <laughs> Every most people are these days, but I'm I'm always happy to talk to you. And I certainly have been working in education for a while in a variety of contexts. So hope that I have some things to share that might be of value. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start off the interview with a simple question about your childhood. What kind of education system did you go through? Well, one thing you'll learn when you hear me is that there's no simple question with me because、uh, <laughs> I tell stories that are very long. I don't. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to.、Um, you're going to have to tell me when you want me to cut to the chase because I tell I give plenty of detail. So I grew up in. I currently live in Brooklyn, New York, but I grew up in Long Island, New York, just just a suburb outside of New York City. And I went to the local public school system. My parents are immigrants, so I'm first generation American, and they specifically chose the neighborhood that they we grew up in. You know that they bought a home in, based on the school system, and that's what they told me. They told me, you know, we we. Specifically, we're looking more for a good school system rather than the nicer house, right? Because that was very important. They were going to have children. I'm the oldest of three, and so I went to in Long Island. The way it works is the public schools are funded by the taxpayers of that town. Don't quote me on this. I'm not a tax person, but or a business person, and so the. Town in which I grew up had a very well-funded public school system. We had lots of resources. I mean, it was different than the city in that you sort of go to the school for your for where you live, unless you're going to a private school. If you're in the public school system, you know you live in you live in X town. You go to X town school district, and so I was there. Pre-K through twelve, and the same. My parents never moved. They have the same house. Me and my two siblings 
all went through the same schools. There was one kindergarten, two different elementaries, and then we came together for a middle school and a high school. Um, the reason I talk about it being really well-resourced is because I immediately jump, I'll come back, but I immediately jump to my experience teaching student later on in life as an adult in the inner city in New York City public school systems. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that was like a, a, a huge moment in my life when I, in jumping sort of from my childhood experience of like great teachers all the computers you could need, you know, when I remember when CD-ROM came, oh, I'm dating myself, when like CD-ROM came out, you know, our school library had one pretty early on. There were extracurriculars. There were, you know, the teachers were really well credentialed because different districts paid uh, different amounts. And so this particular district attracted highly credentialed teachers. It was pretty competitive. And so always felt like we had really strong teachers, lots of extracurriculars and enrichment, support for students who needed it. One was really lucky in that way. And in fact, when I was in high school, when I had the first and best teacher of my life who sort of (laughs) literally guided my entire uh, career trajectory from there, in I would say before I had this teacher, so in elementary school and in middle school, I was a shy kid. I did average academically, you know, neither like standing out as excelling nor falling behind, just kind of under the radar. And I probably liked it that way because I was shy. And when I got to high school, um, this is really what led me into education. When I got to high school, my freshman year, I was assigned to an elective called creative writing. And this was September. I'm a freshman in high school. It's a big deal. Um, And I had this teacher, Mr. Lippman, and he was the creative writing teacher. And he is also um, a published poet. I didn't, I don't remember if I knew that immediately, but he gave us some really creative assignments. And it was September of that year where he, I forget the prompt, but he asked us to write a, a short story. And, you know, I was now like 13. So like a little bit of like teenage subversion um, and subversive nature was, was starting to creep in. And so I took some creative liberties with how I responded to that assignment. And I actually thought I was going to get in trouble. Like <laughs> I'm obviously not a daring kid <laughs> uh, because I thought I'd get in trouble for taking creative liberties in a short story, but I wrote this short story. Then the next day I go into class and he's like, Naveen, can I talk to you? And I was like, okay, he's going to tell me to redo it. He's going to tell me that wasn't the assignment. And instead he's like, tell me about this story. And I remember it was a story about told from the perspective of apples in like a factory that was producing applesauce and like how horrible this was. It was called Apple Rights. That's all I remember. Wow. And he said, tell me about this story. And I don't exactly remember what I said, but I said something to the effect of, well, you said we should write something, blah, blah, blah. And this is how I took it. And I'm like bracing myself on the inside for him to be like, you know, some, some sort of stern response. But instead he's like, this is really good. In fact, I've showed wow. it to the chairperson of the English department. And I want you to be switched into honors English. 
And I had been scheduled for just regular English. Um, There was sort of an honor system. And it was the first time in my life where it was the beginning of developing real confidence in myself in school. It's the first time I was ever confident in school, really. That's a big deal. Um, It was, you know, I grew up, I was shy. I was also kind of quirky, right? And all of a sudden I realized that that quirkiness wasn't like, that was creativity, right? That was a gift, right? And it's all of a sudden you take the same quirky, silly kid and then she writes and all of a sudden it's now art. It's poetry. It's it's good writing. It's writing, in fact, that's excellent, right? Yeah. Per, you know, per my teacher, and so I was put into. I was switched in the first month of school into honors English, and I excelled in English, um, and then took AP, which is uh, advanced placement English, like co- sort of college level in my final year. Right. And I excelled in all four years. Before we move on, I just want to say that uh, your story gave me goosebumps. It still gives me goosebumps. I still have, judge me if you want, I still have some of the papers and the poetry and the assignments I wrote for that high school English teacher. I am 38 wow. years old. I was 15 when I was in his class. So I don't, I don't care. People can look up my age. Yeah. So tell me what made you write that story? I mean, like, obviously you had a doubt how that story was going to be received. I did, but I think it was like a combination of, I always had a, you know, if you talk to my parents, they'll always say that I had this wild imagination as a kid. So like at home with my siblings and my cousins, I would tell, I would orally tell these fantastical stories that would make people crack up. I remember making like my cousins crack up around the table if we were having a family dinner. I just had a crazy wild imagination, but just very silly and limitless and seemingly random, but like it worked. And I always had that. And I think it was just, I think I was 13 or 14. I forget what age you are. I think around there when, and I think there was just a a part of me, like I've always had a bit of a subversive, it was the beginning of my subversive streak. I was very timid and then I became very subversive. It's the beginning of it. And I think I just was, like the, in in the way other te- teenagers might try to test put you know test boundaries or test limits, this was my version of testing boundaries and testing limits, um, in sort of taking creative license with this story, um, and it worked. That was literally a pivotal moment. That semester, I was coached. Really, I mean by coached, I mean he became a mentor for all of uh, this teacher, Mr. Lim, and became a mentor for all of my high school experience. I had him the following year from as my English teacher, and he continued to be someone I would bring my writing to, and he would give me actual feedback. And he really treated me as another writer. He himself was a writer and a published poet and still is. And he would say things to me like, you know, sort of these incredible, incredible things when you grow up and you're a poet, well, we're going to exchange, uh, we'll, we'll exchange poems or I can't believe you're writing this well when you're 15. And when you're 15 and a published poet is saying they wish they wrote it, like they were where you were at 15, that kind of blows your mind, especially if you really respect this person, which I really did. He was a really engaging teacher. He was also very like, 
funny, silly, goofy, quirky in the classroom. Everyone loved this teacher. Like, I'm not alone in loving this teacher. Everyone loved this teacher. He was probably most people's favorite teacher. He got he kept, he got our attention. He kept our attention, and a lot of my self esteem was built in high school, because oh. all of a sudden, what I felt bad about in my childhood, which is feeling like I was weird or quirky or like oddly you know oddly creative, became a gift and a talent. It was just spun on its head. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I believe that by the time I was in my sophomore year and I had Mr. Littman as my English teacher, I just didn't want to say it out loud, but I knew that I was going to be a teacher because there was just, I had already known at that point that this person had, had really changed my life. And that even if, if I was just one child for one child or for one person, that is an entire world you're changing. And I wasn't wrong because it's been over 20 years and I literally still get goosebumps thinking about how important um, that experience was for me as a student, how it sort of made me, helped make me who I am. Wow, that's so powerful. Yeah. So, so I became, yeah, so then, so then I went to college, I went to undergrad at SUNY Binghamton and studied English because I wasn't really thinking about what do you want to do for a career? I was like, what do you like doing? Oh, I like reading and writing. Okay. So I just spent four years <laughs> reading books, <laughs> writing essays, minored in French because I thought the language was pretty, again, not thinking about utility, only thinking about what I liked. I'm just going to spend my college years doing what I like doing. Yeah. So I spent my college years studying English literature and was a French minor and was even proficient enough to be reading novels in French and at the end writing comparative literature essays in French and then lost all of that because <laughs> I didn't use it. Yeah. But I did go straight to graduate school to become a teacher and I chose not to go the Teach for America route or teaching course route because there was a big part of me that felt strongly that there's a difference between being an expert in a certain content or subject matter and knowing how to teach. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel confident. Not There's a lot of great teachers that came out of those programs. Those programs have done wonderful things. For me, it just didn't feel like the right path. I didn't want to learn as I went. Uh, it was also teaching is I, I had experienced firsthand how life-changing teaching could be, and I wanted to make sure I was prepared. I didn't want to yeah. go in not feeling prepared. So also, because this is where Mr. Lippman went um, for his education degree, so I applied to Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City, and a couple of other places, but that was my top, and I got in, and I was delighted, and um, I went straight from undergrad to grad school. It was like a one month gap. So I went straight for my master's and I did that. And that was another really um, pivotal moment in terms of my career in education because I came from having a K through 12 experience in a wealthy suburban public school district to student teaching in New York City. Yeah. So you had your own experience to compare with. Um, did you get to choose where you want to go after graduated from the grad school? I was, in fact, placed. They randomly place you 
Um, New York City is very diverse. Um, for people who haven't been here, the neighborhoods are, can be drastically different in so many ways. And so I got placed in a neighborhood that you might call under-resourced in terms of socioeconomic status of most of the people in that neighborhood. And I was literally shocked. I, I, the lack of resources, the quality of the resources, the quality of the facilities, just, it was a bit of culture shock for me, um, even though I'm from New York and I had traveled into New York City all the time, but I had traveled and I had gone to specific parts of New York City. You know, I had not gone into the public school system in, you know, what one might consider the inner city. So I saw these kids who were, you know, not my students, student teaching, kind of my students. And I had this like thought, and so I was 21 and I was like, this is really not fair. I said, I had an excellent education and excellent teachers and excellent resources and technology and extracurricular. And so, so I, and the, so I said, I started like, let's say up here, I'm, I'm making a gesture with my hands, like to indicate a level I started here, yeah. but I didn't earn starting there. I just happened to be born into that family to my parents who happened to have made the choice and been fortunate enough to select a place to live based on the school district. I didn't earn the K through 12 education. I mean, I guess I could thank my parents. They earned it for me. But when I, it was a public school, right? I didn't go to private school. And when I saw this public school or public schools in general at that time, and this was in the early 2000s, I just, I did, I said, these kids, there's their baselines. If it's like, if we're starting a race, like I had this head start and that's how, like, how is that fair? Like they have to make up that gap. And I didn't see the schools being able to make up that gap, at least in the schools that I was in, in the context I was in. And I just like, in general, I was just really stuck on this, um, the disparity and what it meant to get to one place in life for one person who was born into X set of circumstances and another person who wasn't. And not that my family was wealthy, we were middle class, but that is very privileged if in the context of the world, right? Even just to be able to choose where you live in a suburb, right, is very privileged and I recognize that. Um, and I just got really upset. And I was 21. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in the inner city because these students, they deserve high quality, highly qualified teachers. A lot of my fellow, I guess, peers in the cohort with me when I was at teacher's college, many of them really wanted to get into like the best schools in the city. Even within the public school system, there are specialized schools. There are schools that are sort of have a reputation for being more competitive to get into. More resourced, mostly because in the public school system, I think, you know, schools get treated, to my knowledge, equally. But there are some public schools where if the students who attend that public school come from families who are more affluent, get things like PTAs who can make up the difference, right? They can give on top of, you know, the standard what a city school gets. Yeah. So a lot of my colleagues wanted those schools. And then as we graduated, many of them took jobs in 
the suburbs or outside of New York City. So Long Island, Westchester, because those schools, different than the New York City public school system, those schools generally paid more. Frankly, they paid astronomically more because the schools were funded by the taxes. And if you found a school in a wealthy neighborhood, they generally had more money, therefore more budget for their teachers. It sounds like if you are working in the public school that's in a more affluent neighborhood, not only that you will have more resources at your disposal as a teacher, but at the same time, you are paid more. Yeah. And, and Columbia Teachers College, it's one of the better teaching schools. And you know, it helped a lot of people got jobs in, in the, those districts that they wanted, those more resourced districts, because they paid more. Not only did they pay more, in a lot of ways, if they are more resourced, that includes staffing, that includes things like extracurriculars, it includes what you need to do in the classroom, because you have to take into account and I only realized this when I was a classroom teacher, that there's only so much you can do in the classroom. Yeah. If there are students who get things and experiences at home, that changes the kind of, it just changes the students you're working with and what they're coming to school with. And so yeah. they made you do two different semesters. I was going to be a high school English teacher was what I thought. And you had to do one semester student teaching in a middle school and one in a high school. So for my high school placement, which was the second one, I asked them to put me in the in the roughest school that they had in their list. Yeah. And generally, as a rule of thumb, it was the opposite. They had the graduate students really like trying to ask, please put me in this or that really nice or really highly competitive school. And for that reason, they had a policy saying like, we don't take requests, like we are going to, mm. everyone's going to be randomly placed. But my advisor at the time said, okay, I'm going to make one exception for you. I want you to go to this school and meet the teacher because you asked for a really rough school. I just want to make sure you're going to feel okay with this. So it was a, a school at the time that was failing or under review by the Department of Education. It was a technical high school in the South Bronx um, where students generally learned a trade um, that they couldn't come out of high school with, such as being an electrician or a plumber, along with their academics. And I went and, you know, this is naive 21-year-old me, you know, thinking I could change the world with a degree from teacher's college and myself. And <laughs> I taught there and the biggest thing I saw there was teachers who had given up on their students, really. They kind of were just there, but they had, had given up on the futures of their students. They were like, it's too late. Like, look at the environment they're in, look at what they're involved in right now, look at where they are right now, there's no way to fix this. And it was just really sad. I kind of remember discussing this with my then supervising teacher at that school. And he was a good teacher, but he also, I felt, had given up on the students. And so I was teaching freshman English, and I had to teach Romeo and Juliet. But this, these students who are freshmen in high school, their reading level was significantly behind. And the, the teacher said they can't read the real Shakespeare and gave me like a, I don't know, 20 page photocopy storybook rewrite of Romeo and Juliet that an elementary school kid could read approximately. And I just remember thinking, 
how did these kids get to high school without knowing how to read a novel on their level or, or write a paragraph? Like, well, I, I have to teach them how to write a paragraph still. This, how am I supposed, I can't talk with them about Shakespeare if they can't write a paragraph or if they can't read the actual text and they need to read a, like, a very severely modified version. My experience in high school is we were discussing novels. We were reading like Toni Morrison and, you know, like Steinbeck. And I was a, a huge fan of The Catcher in the Rye and J.D. Salinger. And like, we were discussing those books. The teacher wasn't teaching us how to read anymore. They were, we were thinking, we were discussing. And I was like, I can't do that because they don't have the, the basic skills. And the basic skills are more important. I don't really care if they know about Romeo and Juliet. I'd rather teach them how to write a paragraph and how to read because that's more important. So that's what led me to decide to, to go and teach sixth grade, which was the lowest grade that I was going to be certified for. Because I said, let me go backward in the system. Let me try my best to sort of go back and, and course correct so that we have fewer kids who end up in high school. Um, and I taught sixth grade for five years. And I love sixth graders. It was great. They're, they were like such a sweet age. I could be really silly and funny and go they're just young enough that I could still be really goofy and they didn't think I was being lame. They thought it was funny. I later taught eighth grade. They thought it was lame. <laughs> so <laughs> sixth grade, they appreciated my, my cheesy humor. Um, and so I taught sixth grade and then I taught eighth for five years and I taught eighth grade for a year. But the reality is I taught sixth grade for five years in the inner city in an under-resourced school with students whose most, most of their families were under-resourced in a socioeconomic sense. They had come to me also already at a deficit um, in terms of reading and writing skills. Not all of them, mm -hmm. but I would say a majority. And it was really hard. It was really hard. It's really hard when you're trying to bridge the gap. And I also realized in this time that it is a system, meaning out, the education system is only one piece. Mm -hmm. So I saw these kids coming into the school and I could give the best lesson or I could have the most tailored instructions. Mm -hmm. But if you know, the kids, if a student hasn't eat, eaten breakfast or came to school after having an argument with an older sibling or didn't sleep well that night because they sleep on the couch because there's just not enough. There are all these outside that don't have to do with the school system and that the school system can't really address, but all these outside things that affect the student's learning. I realized no, no matter how I felt at that point, no matter how good of a teacher I was, that I didn't feel like I was moving the needle. Now, maybe a couple of my students would disagree if they remember me, but it was also really taxing on me because when you, as a person, and when you care so much, like the downside of being super passionate and very passionate about what you're doing is that you care so much and you give more than you have to give. Like you give all that you have and then you give more. And that's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and I ended up needing to, I got to a point where I, I realized I was frankly burnt out. And 
I felt that I needed, it was my, my duty actually to leave the classroom once I no longer felt like I was my best self there. I felt like it was legitimately a disservice to the students to be one of those teachers who is in the classroom every day because they can be, but they don't want to be necessarily, or they don't feel invigorated or energized by it. I actually felt that that was, there are other jobs where maybe I would not feel as bad about just coming to my job every day and not loving it or being really into it. But when you're talking about teaching students, I think you, you can't do that. In our next episode, we'll continue our conversation on funding disparities in public schools. Naveen's answer to this important question, what is school for? And the purpose of what education is truly about, changing people's lives by helping them discover who they truly are. If you are a parent in the public schools and would like to be my guest on the show, I would love to have you. Here's how. Visit my website, jessicazo.com, and submit your request, or follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.